Well, I'm not going to go into detail because I think most of you are familiar with the basic story of what happened. Moses and Aaron going to Pharaoh, saying, please uh, let my people go. So we'll just kind of uh, read a few verses, but I want to tackle especially the difficult question of the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, That is a very uh, contemporary issue today uh, in Christianity, especially uh, as we'll discuss a passage in Romans, which um, I think can uh, quite easily paint a a picture of God that is um, uh, not the reality. So just a few verses. Moses and Aaron went to the king of Egypt and said, The Lord, the God of Israel, says, Let my people go. And so that they can hold a festival in the desert to honor me. Now does that paint the full picture here? They're just going to go out and have a festival? Uh, It's kind of interesting. Of course, Pharaoh responded, Well, who is the Lord? Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? And of course, you know, how did you measure the gods in that time? Uh, The gods were measured basically on, uh, well, what's the nation like? How powerful are the people under this god? And so why should Pharaoh pay any attention to the god of Israel? They're a bunch of slaves. Obviously, he's a pretty weak god from Pharaoh's perspective. Why should I listen to him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And uh, then he would go on to say, you know, you gave these people a vacation What do you mean by making the people neglect their work? Get those slaves back to work. You people have become more numerous than the Egyptians. And now you want to stop working? And so things um, really went sour here for a while because uh, Pharaoh, of course, made the people do extra work. They had to now collect their own materials to make the bricks. And so the, the foremen here of the Israelites became very upset. The foremen realized that they were in trouble when they were told that they had to make the same number of bricks every day as they'd made before. As they were leaving, they met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them. And they said to Moses and Aaron, the Lord has seen what you have done and will punish you for making the king and his officers hate us. You have given them an excuse to kill us. And then Moses turned to the Lord again and said, and remember Moses here is a friend of God, spoke face to face with God as a man speaks with a friend. And just listen to what he said to God. Lord, why do you mistreat your people? Why did you send me here? Ever since I went to the king to speak for you, he has treated them cruelly, and you have done nothing to help them. Imagine saying that to God. Well, how did God respond? Then the Lord said to Moses, how dare you speak to me that way? I mean, imagine, what do you think God said to such pointed words? Can you talk to God that way? This is what he said. Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. I will show him my power, and he will let my people go. I will show him my power, and he will throw them out of his country. So it's interesting here, no rebuke to Moses. We'll we'll kind of point to this every time. There are so many examples of this. Uh, We talked about Abraham saying to God, surely the judge of the earth has to do what is right. You can't do that. Okay, and now Moses here Um, being honest with God and telling him what he really thought. Now, the question is, how is God going to show his power? And um, how would you deal with someone like Pharaoh? Um, How would you reach someone who sees the God of Israel, if that is a real God, as obviously a very weak, impotent God? I mean, the only way you could reach someone like Pharaoh 
uh, wouldn't you have to reach him on a very basic level, which would be, hey, I'm more powerful than your gods. And I think that's, that's basically the only way that God could get to someone like Pharaoh. And so, of course, the first was, was not the plagues, but the demonstration that his, uh, Aaron's rod or snake was more powerful than the Egyptians. So the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, give me a sign to prove that God has sent you, tell Aaron, take your shepherd's staff and throw it down in front of Pharaoh and it will become a large snake. Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials and it became a large snake. And then Pharaoh sent for his wise men and sorcerers and we see um, Satan, who was a snake in the tree in the garden, perhaps behind all of this. Um, but their magicians did the same thing using their magic spells. Each of them threw his staff down and they all became large snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed theirs. Yet Pharaoh continued to be stubborn and would not listen to them as the Lord had predicted. So the, the kind of the first step here was to try to prove, hey, God of Israel, actually he is more powerful than the God of the Egyptians. Um, and he swallowed up these snakes, but uh, that wasn't impressive enough for Pharaoh. It must have been a trick. So we move on. And here's what the Lord says. This is the way you will recognize that I am the Lord. And with this staff in my hand, the same staff that just turned into a snake that swallowed up the Egyptian snakes, I'm going to strike the Nile and the water will turn into blood. And of course, you know the story of how successively from one plague um, to another, okay, the Nile turned to blood, we've got frogs and gnats and flies, animals dying, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then of course the Passover. Okay, and, and, and these are um, troubling, these are violent things that happened. The question is, is this the only way that um, God could get his people out of Israel. I mean, it's interesting. God is trying to get his people out, but his people don't even seem that interested in going out. They're, they're complaining to Moses. It doesn't even seem like they're that interested at the time. Um, one option I'll just, I'll just mention, I, I, I can't wrap my mind around this to make sense of it, but some have suggested, well, it was Satan who sent these plagues. And the reason that... Um, that, that I can't make sense out of that is we have God saying, I'm going to do this, and then it happened. And, um, well, it, it would seem to me anyway to make Satan out to be kind of a fool if he's going to do God's dirty work. It would seem like the smart thing for Satan would be to do the opposite at that time. God says he's going to do something. Well, certainly uh, Satan is not going to, to help him out by sending frogs and flies. So perhaps we need to come up with another uh, solution for these plagues. And um, I think it's very interesting, of course it's well known, uh, the, all of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped, that each one of these um, things that were involved in the plagues, there was a specific deity involved for each of these. So there was a god of the Nile, Happy, if that's how you pronounce it. Uh, the god of the Nile thought to bring water and life to Egypt. So again, if you're Pharaoh, you're worshipping all these gods, who is the god of Israel? And you see that the god of Israel obviously is stronger then your God of the Nile, hmm, well, you'd have to consider that. Well, it would seem that uh, maybe he is stronger. And, of course, he kept rejecting this. And we go all the way through. The frogs, Heka, the toad goddess. Um, Graham Maxwell has told this story many times, but, you know, if uh, you were worshipping the God of the frogs, 
before you go to bed at night and you've just cleaned up heaping piles of dead frogs from that plague, you know, might you think uh, the God of the frogs uh, must not be that strong? Okay, do you see God kind of systematically going through here and defeating these false gods? Okay, the gnats, flies, death of the animals, boils here. Interesting, Thoth is the god of medicine and wisdom. And the ritual done in Egypt at this time is that they would sacrifice humans, burn them alive on high altars, and then spread their ashes into the air as a blessing to heal people. Okay, so notice what Moses did as kind of a, a counter okay, to this God. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take a handful of ashes from a furnace and have Moses throw them up in the air as Pharaoh watches. They will become a fine dust throughout Egypt. The dust will cause boils to break into open sores on people and animals throughout Egypt. Kind of, again, the opposite. Again, I think at a very fundamental, basic level, at least saying, hey, I'm stronger than all of these um, so-called gods. Can we go through hail, locust, darkness, of course, Ra, the sun god. Okay, if you're worshiping the sun god and you see the god of Israel able to darken the sun, God is again saying, I am stronger. Can't reach Pharaoh with a mes message about his humility. That would be uh, complete nonsense, right? You just got to show he's more powerful. And then, of course, the Passover. And here we actually have it in the Bible. On that night, I will go through the land punishing all the gods of Egypt. And, of course, um, those gods aren't real. So the meaning is defeating those gods, exposing those gods as impotent. Okay, so the, 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 perhaps even more challenging here, uh, at least for a contemporary uh, theology, is uh, this passage here in Exodus. It's a span of three verses that describes the hardening of Pharaoh's heart in three different ways. Okay, when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart. Notice, he hardened his heart. He and his servants, so... The heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. Now the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his servants. And we wonder, Moses here writing this, um, why did he describe it so many different ways? Can we choose whichever one we want? Pharaoh hardened his heart, just a matter of fact it was hard, or God hardened his heart. Uh, which, which would really express the reality of what happened. And the reason I said this is such a big deal is there's a passage here in Romans 9, um, which for, for certain people has uh, really constructed quite a, a theology around this. And I think uh, I'll just make one point here that we, we can't take any passage in the Bible in isolation. We always have to read it in its context of both the book and the entire Bible and so Romans 9, that discusses the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, must be read in the context of Romans 1 through 8. And Romans 1 through 8 basically say, God will save everyone who trusts him. God will save the Gentiles. The Gentiles, I mean, what it means to be a real Jew is to be circumcised in your heart and to trust God once again. And in Romans chapter 9, Paul turns to his Jewish audience who doesn't like that concept very much. Okay, and so he says in Romans 9 verses 1, Paul would say, I'm speaking the truth. I belong to Christ and I do not lie. My conscience, ruled by the Holy Spirit, also assures me that I am not lying. 
When I say how great is my sorrow, how endless the pain in my heart for my people, the Jews, my own flesh and blood. For their sake, I could wish that I myself were under God's curse and separated from Christ. Okay, so the discussion now is about the Jewish audience that is very offended by the Gentiles who are now being won back to God through the revelation of God by Jesus Christ. Okay, so he would go on to say, uh, in talking about Pharaoh, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on anyone, anyone I wish. I will take pity on anyone I wish. And so then everything depends not on what we humans want or do, but only on God's mercy. For the scripture says to the king of Egypt, I made you king in order to use you to show my power and to spread my fame over the whole world. So then God has mercy on anyone he wishes and he makes stubborn anyone he wishes. So uh, a certain understanding would be, hey, God calls all the shots here. He makes people do uh, whatever is to his advantage in this circumstance or that circumstance. And I like how um, Paul kind of asks the natural question. But one of you will say to me, if this is so, how can God find fault with anyone? Who can resist God's will, right? How, I mean, how could God fault us if he would make some people do something even bad if it would serve his purpose? And here's the answer, which doesn't sound very reassuring. But who are you, my friend, to talk back to God? And in some versions, uh, older versions, who are you to question the inscrutable ways of God? Period. And that's the end of discussion. But now we have a nice uh, illustration. A clay pot does not ask the man who made it, why did you make me like this? After all, the man who makes the pots has the right to use the clay as he wishes and to make two pots from the same lump of clay, one for special occasions and the other for ordinary use. And the same is true of what God has done. And again, a certain understanding of the potter clay analogy would be God makes some vessels that are designed to be blessed and to spend eternity with him. And then he makes other vessels of his wrath, which are designed to uh, suffer in eternal fire and torment. It's God's will. Okay, we're predestined for one of these two. Well, how do we understand the potter clay uh, analogy? Uh, we just think uh, we don't maybe watch. If you go to Laguna, you can watch uh, people do this. But the potter clay analogy comes from Jeremiah. So we need to read this in Jeremiah if we're going to understand Paul's reference and what he wants us to understand about the potter clay analogy. So we'll go to Jeremiah 18. Okay, here is how God is a potter. The Lord said to me, go down to the potter's house where I will give you my message. So I went there and saw the potter working at his wheel. Okay, and notice this is an analogy for uh, the people. Whenever a piece of pottery turned out imperfect, does that mean the potter made it imperfect? Whenever it turned out imperfect, he would take the clay and make it into something else. Okay, notice here that things are not, this person is not developing the way God is bringing them up. They're turning out imperfect. They're going in the wrong direction. And, but notice here, God is saying, hey, I can make something else out of that. And the Lord said to me, don't I have the right to do with you people of Israel what the potter did with the clay? You are on my hands just like clay in the potter's hands. Okay, and, and at this time in Jeremiah, the people are just rebelling severely. And what God is saying is, hey, yes, you have. You've turned out very imperfect. But let me still, I can still reshape you. I can make something good out of this. If at any time I say that I'm going to uproot, break down, or destroy any nation or kingdom, but then that nation turns from its evil, 
I will not do what I said I would. This is a, it's a demonstration of God's flexibility, this passage. On the other hand, if I say that I'm going to plant or build up any nation or kingdom, but then that nation disobeys me and does evil, I will not do what I said I would. Okay, so it's a good analogy, really, for Paul to use at this point. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. The Jews rejected Christ. Uh, many Gentiles accepted him. Okay, and so the potter clay analogy is, hey, I, I can reshape. I can, I can uh, recreate. I can make something good out of this. And it's just if we read on here another verse, God would say, turn from your evil ways. Does it sound like a God who predestined people for evil ways? He wants them to turn back. Turn from your evil ways. Change your lives and do good. But the people will answer, it's useless. We'll live the way we want to. We'll go our own stubborn, evil ways. So in other words, they have chosen, they're rejecting God's offer to, to bring them back, to reshape them um, in a different way. Okay, so I like this interpretation here of the potter clay analogy, which is not God's unilateral control but God's willingness and right to change his plans in response to our changed hearts. The sovereign potter remains flexible. If the Jews abandon their unbelief, clearly God's hardening is not determinative or irrevocable. The potter will once again refashion his plans. Conversely, if the Gentiles abandon their belief and become prideful, clearly God's mercy is not determinative or irrevocable. The potter will once again refashion his plan for them. Okay, so the potter clay analogy is really almost exactly the opposite of how it is uh, interpreted sometimes here in the book of Romans. Okay, a demonstration of God's flexibility, not uh, a predestined kind of a thing. This really is an illustration of the judgment. I mean, the, it was a judgment for Pharaoh. Okay, his rejecting of more and more and more evidence. Okay, he's the one who rejected that. He hardened his heart. Okay, and Jesus would say in his conversation with Nicodemus, don't you love a plain verse like this? This is how the judgment works. Okay, how does the judgment work? This is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. The light has come into the world, but people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds are evil. In other words, the judgment ultimately is how do we respond to the light? How do we respond to the good news? Okay, are we like Pharaoh? Do we harden our hearts? Okay, or do we rejoice and accept in the good news? And uh, later on in John, these were the last words that Jesus spoke to the Pharisees before he went into the upper room. And Jesus said to them, the light will be among you a little longer. Continue on your way while you have the light so that the darkness will not come upon you. For the one who walks in the dark does not know where he is going. Believe in the light then while you have it so that you will, not, so that you will be people of the light. And after Jesus said this, he went off and hid himself from them. And notice, even though he had performed all these miracles in their presence, just like Pharaoh, even though he'd given those Pharisees so much evidence, I mean, he resurrected Lazarus three days in the tomb, gave them all this evidence, they still did not believe in him. And then here we have a quote from Isaiah that just ties in perfectly. As the prophet Isaiah said, God has blinded their eyes and closed their minds so that their eyes would not see. Now, does that mean Jesus came, he presented all this good news, but there was never a chance for the people to respond to it because God blinded them. Okay, that's, no, this is the way it is expressed at this time. 
Okay, but Jesus was trying to reach those people. He didn't uh, predetermine or make God the Father didn't make them blind, even though it's expressed that way. Okay, so that their eyes would not see, their minds would not understand, and they would not turn to me, says God, for me to heal them. Okay, God desperately wanted to heal them. Okay, but they rejected the truth. Okay, the Pharisees hardened their heart just as Pharaoh did. Okay, and so uh, as evidence of this, if we just read on a few verses in Romans 9, Again, a quote from the Old Testament, this time Hosea. Okay, and this is describing the Gentiles. The people who were not mine, I will call my people. The nation that I did not love, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where they were told, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. So in other words, the Potter analogy here, the, the Gentiles who had not turned out right, they'd rejected God all the way through, God is now saying, hey, I am now making something wonderful out of this, just like the potter, reshaping the clay. And so when we read, read the words like, who are you to talk back to God? It really is uh, God saying to the Jews at that time, are you saying I can't save everyone who will trust me? Are you saying I can't make something good out of the Gentiles? Okay, we should read it in that light rather than uh, in a more uh, predetermined fashion. Okay, so one last analogy here on what happened to Pharaoh. Okay, here we have a lump of butter, and we'll stick with clay, since we're talking about clay here. Now, what happens here? If we heat up an oven, and we put butter and clay into the oven, what happens to the butter? Melts, what happens to the clay? Becomes hard. Okay, and so what happens, I think, in each individual mind is as we are diffused with more and more evidence that God pours out to us, just like Pharaoh re received evidence, um, are we melted, are we won back to God, or do we harden our hearts against God? God is involved, definitely, in the sense that he turns up the oven or heat or whatever uh, analogy we want to use. He brings evidence, okay, but it's, it's ultimately how we respond to that evidence. All right, so Pharaoh hardened his heart. And then the people, of course, you know, took about three months to get from Egypt to uh, Mount Sinai, three-month journey. And uh, what's your overall impression of this? Was it a, a wonderful trip out there? Lots of singing of songs and uh, trusting in God, wonderful experience. Um, I had about five slides of quotes here, and I decided, okay, you guys all know how bad it was. So I just put two in. Um, one in Exodus 14, where the people said, weren't there any graves in Egypt? Did you have to bring us out here in the desert to die? Look at what you've done by bringing us out of Egypt. Okay, read over a couple chapters later. We wish that the Lord had killed us in Egypt. There we could at least sit down and eat meat. You have brought us into this desert to starve us to death. Of course, they're getting manna, but um, it wasn't the food they wanted. So uh, grumbling and complaining. And I think we can only understand what happened at Mount Sinai if we understand the people that are going out to Mount Sinai. Um, next week, I think we'll talk about something very important, and that is uh, the law, the Ten Commandments, and all of the other rules that God gave at that time. Okay, but now I want to focus mainly on why God came to Mount Sinai in the way that he did. You know, couldn't he have come like he did on um, uh, Mount of Olives, um, Matthew 5, couldn't he have said, blessed are the meek, he came in human form, had them all sit down around a grassy hillside? Um, why did he come with just overwhelming force and power? 
we need to read this passage. I can't just tell you it was overwhelming power. We have to, uh, I think, actually kind of come to grips with what this was like. So let's just read it. The Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Go to the people and tell them to spend today and tomorrow purifying themselves for worship. They must wash their clothes and be ready for the day after tomorrow. On that day, I will come down on Mount Sinai where all the people can see me. Mark a boundary around the mountain that the people must not cross and tell them not to go up the mountain or even get near it. If any of you set foot on it, you are to be put to death. You must either be stoned or shot with arrows without anyone touching you. This applies to both people and animals. Hey, imagine, you've got to keep the animals away. They must be put to death. But when the trumpet is blown, then the people are to go up to the mountain. And then Moses came down the mountain and told the people to get ready for worship. And imagine hearing this message. God's coming down on the mountain. Don't come close. So they washed their clothes. And Moses told them, be ready by the day after tomorrow. And don't have sexual intercourse in the meantime. This is very serious. (laughs) On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning. A thick cloud appeared on the mountain. And a very loud trumpet blast was heard. Kind of... Imagine this happening today. I mean, the hills behind the Loma Linda Hospital. You know, we're all going to go out tomorrow. We're going to meet God. Okay, and this is what it's like. Loud trumpet blast. All the people in the camp trembled with fear. Moses led them out of the camp to meet God. And they stood at the foot of the mountain. Imagine them all trying to hide behind Moses as they walk out there. All of Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord had come down on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a furnace, and all the people trembled violently. The sound of the trumpet became louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him with thunder. Yeah, wouldn't that instill a little confidence, maybe in Moses, communicating with God, who's talking with him in thunder. And the Lord came down on the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses climbed the mountain. And then the Lord told Moses, go back down and warn the people not to break through the boundaries to see the Lord or they will die. Even the priests who regularly come near the Lord must purify themselves so that the Lord does not break out and destroy them. But Lord, Moses protested, the people cannot come up to Mount Sinai. You already warned us. You told me, mark off a boundary all around the mountain to set it apart as holy. But the Lord said, go down and bring Aaron back up with you. In the meantime, do not let the priests or the people break through to approach the Lord. It doesn't sound like they're that eager to break through and approach the Lord, but he keeps warning them, or he will break out and destroy them. So Moses went down to the people and told them what the Lord had said. Um, It's helpful here, uh, as we consider this, to also read the, the parallel passage in Deuteronomy. Okay, add some important things. First of all, you notice the very first verse we read in this whole passage, I think is quite uh, important. The Lord said to Moses, I will come to you in a thick cloud. What's the purpose? So that the people will hear me speaking with you and will believe you from now on. Okay, when we consider the, the 40 years journey through the wilderness, and when we get to numbers, it was just continual mutiny against Moses. Okay, even Aaron and Miriam, they were continually challenging Moses' authority, wanting to take over. Okay, and so I think part of the reason here for all of this uh, display was to instill in the people some trust and confidence in Moses. Hey, he's the one talking with God. Good thing Moses is here. 
Now, I guess a, maybe a question to ask is, let's come back to our Loma Linda analogy here. And God had come down on fire and had revealed something. Um, would obedience pick up for a while, do you think? Uh, do you think uh, church attendance among all of you would maybe pick up for a few weeks? And maybe, uh, I don't know, more people would go out and help the poor or something? I mean, would it change behavior? Do you think God overdo it, overdid it in coming this way? If we read on, was there like a three-month period of time where the people, they didn't grumble at all? They were really good. Okay, did God overdo it? Okay, of course, what happened 40 days later? Okay, they're dancing drunk around a golden calf, which would indicate God didn't so terrify them, okay, that they, they were you know, afraid of uh, not rebelling. So I'd say God didn't overdo it. These were a hard, uh, stiff-necked people, as they're often quoted here in the Bible, and again, dancing around a golden calf 40 days later. So it wouldn't appear that God was too strong. Okay, but here's an important, the important point I want to make out of this story. When the people heard the thunder and the trumpet blast and saw the lightning and the smoking mountain, they trembled with fear and stood a long way off. They said to Moses, if you speak to us, we will listen, but we are afraid that if God speaks to us, we will die. And Moses replied, notice the one who's humble, like we talked about last time, the one who's a friend of God, said to the people, do not be afraid. God has only come to test you and make you keep on obeying him. Keep on obeying? Uh, to, well, that's kind of a gracious way of putting it, but uh, to uh, help you obey so that you will not sin. Okay, interesting. Moses would say there is no need to be afraid. Okay, again, in Deuteronomy, when the whole mountain was on fire, you heard the voice from the darkness. Your leaders and the chiefs of your tribes came to me and said, the Lord our God showed us his greatness and his glory when we heard him speak from the fire. Today we have seen that it is possible for people to continue to live even though God has spoken to them. But why should we risk death again? That terrible fire will destroy us. We are sure to die if we hear the Lord our God speak again. Has any human being ever lived after hearing the living God speak from a fire? Now, go back, Moses. You listen to everything that the Lord our God says and then return and tell us what he said to you. We will listen and obey. Okay, so they pushed Moses forward. You go talk to God. And when the Lord heard this, he said to me, I've heard what these people said, and they are right. If only they would always feel this way. If only they would always honor me and obey me, obey all my commands so that everything will go well with them and their descendants forever. Go and tell them to return to their tents, but you, Moses, stay here with me, and I will give you all my laws and commands. Teach them to the people so that they will obey them in the land that I am giving them. Now, what is Moses' role um, here in this process? We want to put a big uh, Latin word on it. Let's go back and just highlight the, the passage here. The description here is, on the mountain, Moses would say, I stood between you and the Lord. Notice why, because you were afraid. Uh, other translations, I stood as an intermediary between you and the Lord. And in a very old version, I was a mediator and stood between the Lord and you at that time. Isn't that describing the role of an intercessor? Um, someone who is in between, someone who stands in between. I think this is really our first uh, description in the Bible of intercession. And I think this is a very important topic. How do we understand Jesus, certainly, as our intercessor? Okay, what do we understand about just this story based on Moses as an intercession, intercessor? 
Maybe a question, did someone need to intercede between Moses and God? Did he have an intercessor? And of course we have the verses here that Moses, God's own words, he sees me face to face. Everything I say to him is perfectly clear. And in Exodus 33, the Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as someone speaks with a friend. Okay, that is a direct uh, communication between a human and God, no one in between. And of course, who do we understand Jesus to be? If Jesus was none other than God in human form, um, was there someone between Jesus and the people? Uh, the Message Bible quotes the Pharisees being upset because Jesus was hanging out with the riffraff of society. Okay, yet he was God in human form. No one in between. So what is intercession all about? Let me just bring up, uh, I think we need to see intercession uh, very important that we understand that the intercessor is God. And so when we hear Jesus on the cross saying, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they're doing. Uh, do we understand Jesus as a more merciful person in between us and the Father? Or do we imagine that Jesus is expressing the heart of God, the Father, in these words? Is God the Father as gracious as his Son? And of course, lots of evidence for this. Just three verses here. In John 14, Jesus would say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's no difference in the character between the Father and the Son. John 10, the Father and I are one, one in heart, mind, and character. And in Hebrews 1, he, Jesus, reflects the brightness of God's glory. That's not a physical brightness. It's a brightness of God's uh, character, the essence of who God is, the brightness of God's glory, and is the exact likeness of God's own being. We can't split the Trinity here. So if that's true, why do we have an intercessor? If they really are the same. Three verses here that I think um, are helpful. First one is in Hebrews 7, in describing intercession. Okay, this is why he, Jesus, is always able to save those who come to God through him, now notice that. What does Jesus do? To save those who come to God through him. Okay, the intercessor is not to, for the purpose of shielding. Okay, the intercessor is for the purpose of bringing us to God. He's able to save those who come to God through him. He can do this because he always lives and intercedes for them. Again, intercession in the sense of bringing closer. Okay, not shielding. Okay, in Romans 8, it's interesting, the Holy Spirit also intercedes. At the same time, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness because we don't know how to pray for what we need, but the Spirit intercedes along with our groans that cannot be expressed in words. So we have Jesus interceding. We have the Holy Spirit interceding. Okay, and if we were to read on in this passage in Romans 8, we see that the Father is for us also. He's interceding to bring us closer to God. That's the point. And so... If, if that's true, maybe you can understand a verse like this in 1 John 2, where John would say, I'm writing this to you, my children, so that you will not sin. But notice, if anyone does sin, we have someone who pleads or intercedes with the Father on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Uh, do we need an intercessor? Absolutely. In our rebellious state, we need someone to bring us back. If we are in a sinful, rebellious, distrustful state, we need an intercessor Okay, and that's the purpose of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, to, to bring us back. We need to see intercession in that light. So a last verse, but for me, this is like the, the pinnacle, one of the highest points 
in all of scripture. And uh, these are Jesus' words here in the upper room. He's just about to go out into Gethsemane. And he would tell his disciples, you know, you, basically you can't handle the truth. I'd like to tell you a lot more, but uh, you just can't handle it. But then he goes on and tells them this. And I think this should stand as the clear description. You want to know about the Father? Here it is. Jesus would say, I've told you these things in parables. Okay, Jesus told lots of parables. Uh, that can be translated veiled language, allegories, dark sayings. But the hour is now coming when I shall no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I shall tell you about the Father in plain words and openly. Okay, so wouldn't this trump every other description of the Father? I mean, wouldn't this be Jesus' own words the night before he's going to die? I'm now going to tell you plainly about the Father. Okay, what does he say about the Father? We'll read it now in the Phillips translation. I've been speaking to you in parables, but the time is coming to give up parables and tell you plainly about the Father. When that time comes, you will make your request to him in my own name. But notice, but I need make no promise to plead or to intercede with the Father for you. And this might sound threatening. I mean, Jesus is not going to intercede. He's not going to plead. Uh, what does that mean? Why does Jesus promise here not to intercede or plead with the Father? For the Father himself loves you. And I think that's uh, just one of the greatest uh, realities of truth about all of this is when we come to understand that the one in between is God and that the Father's love character is precisely the same as the Son. And in that sense, intercession will come to an end at some point when we see that the heart of God really is the heart of Jesus. The good speed, which is the first American translation of the Bible, um, Goodspeed translated this, I do not promise to intercede with the Father for you. And we have to finish the verse. Why? Because the Father loves you himself. Okay, the intercessor is God. And there really is no one in between, if that is true. Okay, so coming back here to the verse in Deuteronomy here, yes, we need Jesus. We need the intercessor, just like the people needed Moses. Why did Moses stand in between? I stood between you and the Lord at that time because you were afraid. Okay, so God became a humble human being, yet, yet fully God, because we were afraid to restore our trust and to be one uh, back into friendship with God again. Let's pray. <clears throat> Jesus, thank you so much that uh, you came to reveal what God is like. Thank you for your role as an intercessor. And we know that you uh, still serve this role in the world today, interceding, trying to win people back to see the Father, to be just as gracious, kind, and loving as you are. Please help each one of us here to take part in that role in uh, telling other people uh, how good you are. Amen.